verse 1. It says, Abraham again took a wife. And her name was Kiturah. Would you say Kiturah? Kiturah means perfumed or incense or smelly, but in a positive way. She is called, by the way, for what it's worth, a concubine in First Chronicles 1.32. She bore to him Zimran, Yakshan, Midan, Midian, Ishbach, and Shuach. Now, Yakshan began Shira and Didan, and the sons of Didan were Ashurim, which is plural. Im, by the way, is plural for anything, like Cherub, Cherubim. Letushim and Leumim. And the sons of Midian were Ephah, Efer, Hanach, Abida, Elda'ah. Now, aren't you glad I said that and you didn't have to? We could read around the room, but we won't do that. And all of these were the children of Keturah. Now, so what we have here in the first bit of this, for what it's worth, is that there are six more children born to Abraham, seven grandkids and three great-grandchildren born to this man. Now, for what it's worth, we know that Isaac is going to get married in the last chapter, and he was 40 years old. Now, remember, dad's 100 when his son is born. So that puts Abraham at 140. Now, for what it's worth, we know that Sarah dies at 127. So what that means is that if she died at 127 and her husband was 10 years older, follow this on this, when Abraham's wife died, he was 137. At 140, his son gets married. Somewhere between 140 and 175, when Abraham dies, he gets married again. Hey, hats off to the fella. You know what I'm saying, guys? 140, between 140 and 175. Now, He's enormously wealthy, and I don't know whether that's primarily the reason why someone is drawn to him or whether he's simply so blessed. But somewhere down the line, somewhere between 140 and 175, he marries again and has six more kids, which, by the way, means Keturah has three times more children than both Sarah and Hagar combined. That says something. So and if, if, there's, if there's at least one simple little lesson to learn from that is just because you're getting older does not mean God has this great fruitfulness behind you. This guy's going to be more fruitful in his end days. But here's the strange thing about it. I mean, these kids' names. First one's kind of cool. Zimran means musical. But then you've got kids like Yokshan, which means insidious. Midan means discord. Midan means brawling or contention. Ishbak, which means he's going to leave. And then Shemuach, which means... For what's with wealth. Now, now, who names their kids? Well, he's going to leave, and this one's a brawler, and this one's discord, and this one's insidious. Well, all you have to do is wait a few days to, to name your kids, and you might come up with names like this. Especially if you're 150, 160, when your kids start you know, being children. Why does God even mention this? Well, notice the next couple verses. Abraham gave all that he had to Yitzchak, his son, which isn't listed, of course, because that's the child of his, his wife, Sarah. But Abraham gave, and notice the word gifts. He gave gifts to the sons of the concubines, and notice it's plural, which Abraham had while he was still living, and he sent them, which direction does it say here? East. Sent them east. Sent them eastward, away from Isaac, his son, to the country of the what? So let me get this right. He's got a six-pack of kids, and as a six-pack of kids, he's going to give them what? Oh, come on, there's more than three of you in here. He's going to give them what? Gifts. gifts. He's going to give them gifts, and then he's going to send them what direction? Okay, good. So, I'm, I'm 160. I'm 170. I've got five years left. Okay, there we go. We have kids. It's hard time to go. Kind of send these. Now, what gifts do you give kids when you send them off? Now, think about this for a second. 
Because I've got some kids' names in here that are kind of important. Midan, notice that name in there. Midan's the father of the Medo-Persians. Midian, which will be the father of the Midianites. A guy named Shiva, by the way, it's not the first Shiva because there's a son of Cush named Shiva as well. And then this guy, Ashuram, which is from the Asherites. Now, these are going to be people that are going to be dealing with Israel later on. And so God sort of spikes it a little bit here and just lets you know this is the father from all this. But here I go. I'm looking at these people. I'm going, okay, why is he giving me their names? Okay, there's a few that I'm going to have to deal with. But he's got these kids that God clearly knows by name. He's going to, and he gives them stuff. Now, if I were a dad and I were old enough to be a little wise, let's just say 160, 170, I probably have a few years under my belt. He could say I've been around the block enough times to make you dizzy. And, uh, you know, I'm going down the mountain that you're going up now. Or I'm actually down at the bottom of the mountain. And, and with that, what would I give them? Well, the first thing I would give them is something they could trade in any culture. Would that make sense? I'd give them something that I made sure no matter where you're going to go, because I don't know where you're going, I would know I would want to make sure that you could trade it. Interesting, because the Midianites, they pop up on the radar a couple times later. Matter of fact, one of those times is in the book of Judges. And in the book of Judges, if you know the story of Gideon, which basically is one of the biggest sissies in all of Scripture that God calls mighty man of valor, strengthens the guy and he leads Israel over the Midianites. And when they, get the, when they conquer the Midianites... They actually take the booty. They take the stuff that they had. Well, what they take is gold and, for what it's worth, crescent ornaments. It's interesting that they had this symbol that was like a crescent crescent moon. So they take gold, and I find that interesting. Now, for what it's worth, as I start to look at this, I can see why gold would be something given. As a matter of fact, gold, by the way, becomes something known in a group of people called Shiva, like this particular son that's here as well. Would I, as a dad, give them gold? Well, if I had an awful lot of it, it's fairly likely that I would give them gold and say, all right, you know, in other words, here's a, here's a little something to make sure that you can go and get yourself started. What else would I give them? Perhaps what I would give them is medicine. Would that be wise? If I'm going to send them out to a place where I'm not really sure, it might be wise to actually give them something to make sure that if they're not feeling well, that could help them to feel well. Something that makes sure that, you know, don't drink the water down by sure. Let me tell you, an ur, don't drink the water there. I mean, and I'm like, well, what's one of the most common you know, medicines of the day. Well, what's interesting is the most common medicine, or one of the most common medicines, and now we're talking 3,000, well, now we're talking at this point 4,000 years from now, we're we're actually looking at something that kind of numbs you. And that particular medicine will be even around in Jesus' day, which you mix with vinegar when somebody actually is going to die, like you would today with morphine, and it's called myrrh. As a matter of fact, what's interesting is these, uh, these Ishmaelites, when Joseph gets sold, they're actually carrying balms, spices, and myrrh to Egypt. It becomes one of the common trading elements among the traders in the area, among the Bedouin traders. Now, I'm just suggesting this to you. Now, let me just say at this point, let me make it clear, this is my opinion, this isn't, but, but I'm just trying to let the Bible define itself. So I'm looking at this thing, and I go, okay, now wait a minute, let me see. I have this gold and I have this myrrh that he could possibly have given them. Certainly something's going to be given. And then if there'd be anything else, might I just dare say he would give them deodorant? Because if you're going to go to a lot of cultures where you can't bathe a lot, one of the things you're going to give people is something to make sure that you can kind of take off the edge. Now, the only reason I say that is it becomes a real common thing. And one of the most common, by the way, it's used as a medicine as well, in the Song of Solomon, chapter 3, verse 6, 4, 14 as well, it says, Who was he coming out of the wilderness? This is the Shulamite speaking. Like pillars of smoke perfumed with myrrh and frankincense. 
Now, why is that? Int- why, is, why are these things even listed in Scripture? Because God gives this interesting prophecy in the book of Isaiah, chapter 45, verse 6, that says, Fear not, this is God speaking to Israel, for I am with you. Listen, I will bring your descendants out of the east and gather you from the west. It's an interesting thing that God actually talks about bringing them specifically, but descendants as if all of your kin will be gathered, but specifically from where? From where? The east. Now, if you follow this around, if I kind of get this right, what I have is God makes this interesting little note here in the 25th chapter of Genesis where where this Abraham, this older man now, quite older, has a six-pack of kids. He gives them some gifts, sends them east, and Isaiah says, don't worry, when the Messiah comes, he's going to come. I'm going to bring even the descendants from the east back. Well, wait a minute. East. Gifts. And then I get to the Gospel of Matthew. In the Gospel of Matthew, you ever wonder why God made special mention of a few guys, we don't read how many, showed up from the east. And it says this in chapter 2, verse 11 of Matthew. And when they had come to the house, they saw the young child with Mary, his mother, and fell down and worshipped him. And when they opened their treasures, they presented to him gold, frankincense, and myrrh. You kind of go, well, that's kind of weird. It wouldn't be weird if I started in Genesis, got through Isaiah, and then wound up in Matthew. Because what I kind of guess is, somewhere when the Messiah comes, even those distant relatives are going to show up somewhere, maybe with those gifts again. Now, why what made these guys... I mean, do you ever think about this and you think, that's just really bizarre. There's a bunch of guys in the East and they're looking at stars and they go, oh, that's a weird star. Let's follow it. And which guy does that? If you know anything about the desert, I mean, I don't know how a wise man says, I saw a star in the, in the sky. Let's walk through the desert at night when people kill other people and eat them, you know, and steal all their stuff. Let's just go follow the star. Yeah, you're a wise man. And better yet, while we're doing it, let's bring gold. Yeah, that's a great idea. Let's walk through, you know, let's go through Brixton and Hackney at night with a wallet open. That's a great idea. And while we're at it, let's bring some other really expensive things that people really like. Well, you know, what would that be today? Hey, I know what I have. I have a box of brand new iPhone 4S's. Why don't I walk around with that in Brixton as well? Awesome idea. All right, here we go. We're going to go follow this. I mean, there's nothing wise about that. Or is it that God had put upon their heart all the way back at this point that there were a group of kids that said to their children, children, we're actually descendants of this man, Avraham. And there will be a day when God will bring us back. Boys, you don't go alone. Bring some gifts back from there. And I just can't help but think how beautiful it is that God knew all of this thousands, 2,000 years before Jesus came to bring it all the way back to that point 2,000 years later. Well, all of a sudden I go, okay, yeah, I guess that actually has a purpose for being in Scripture. I listen, and I can say just as your pastor, if I don't get something in Scripture, it would just be better for me to say, well, I just don't get it. Someday maybe I'll get it. But at least I got a little bit of this one. And go, okay, I think I'm on to something with that. But in the end of it all, God just makes really, really clear. He's on top of this. He knows what he's doing. Verse 7, the sum of the years of Abraham's life now, which he lived were 175 years. Now it's important. Abraham breathed his last and died at a good old age. 
an old man. And notice it says full of years. Did you guys have in your Bibles how of years is in italics? Now, italics, by the way, means that the translators have added that to try to help you understand it. But if you remove it to what it literally says, what it says is that he died in an old age and he was full. And might I just say, he is full. This man, everything that this man could be satisfied in, he has found himself satisfied. And it says, and he was gathered to his people. Now, for what it's worth, at this particular point now, I'm starting to try to chase all of this down. He's actually going to live at a point where he's going to... I mean, the people that he would know... Well, let me just say this. The great-great-grandson of Noah is a guy named Eber. And Eber, by the way, where they get the term Hebrew from. And I think when Isaac gets... When this man dies, when Abraham dies... His son, Isaac, remember, at 140, got married. For 20 years, he'll wait for children. So that puts dad at 160. And if he dies at 175, that means Jacob and Esau are 15 years old when Abraham dies. That kind of gives me a little idea with that. This guy, Eber, for what it's worth, the great-great-grandson of Noah, was 460. He will die at 464, which means he will outlive Abraham. That's kind of a wild thought. And um, so... What it's worth at this point, he dies, and it says that they buried him in the cave of Machpelah. Perhaps, again, those of you who've walked through are familiar with the cave of Machpelah because that's the place where his wife is buried, Sarah. So I wonder what it would be like to be Keturah. Maybe she got sent off with the kids. But they bury him next to his wife, Sarah, in Mamre, the field of Ephron, the son of Zohar the Hittite. And by the way, they won't be the last people buried in this cave. It's important to recognize, again, Abraham was a man. The only land he owned was the land he could be buried on. It's as if the only real thing that he was going to possess on earth was a place to leave this. And there's something about that that really kind of impacts me, not just hitting my chest like that. Um, The idea of what it could be like to spend so much time investing on this earth, and in the end of it all, you're going to have to bury it all. I mean, you can't take it with you anyways. And there's something about Abraham that just seems like the life he lived was one that was really evident of that, which, by the way, will be a very stark contrast with this man at the beginning, Abraham, and the guy we'll see at the end, which is Esau. Because what we'll find out with Esau is he's a man of the now, 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 now. Abraham was a man of the beyond. And, and I, I love that about this man. As a matter of fact, Hebrews makes very clear this was a man who sought, said that he sought a world beyond where he was living, a city beyond where he was. Because if he really was attached to this world, he would have always had a reason to go back. And I'd like to encourage missionaries and anybody who knows they're called to ministry, you've got to know there is no reverse on this vehicle. Man, it's forward and it's forward. Even if you're going to a country you've been before, is it reverse, man? It's not going to, it didn't stop and wait for you when you get back there. All of a sudden, the places you know are different. And, and I just love the fact that with this, Abraham is just like, he was known as, for two things. He was known for his tents and he was known for his altars. And I just love the idea that tents was just how, how you just, if you looked at this guy and said, what attachment does he have to this earth? He has a tent attachment to this earth. I mean, he's going to have to sleep here somewhere. But if you could tell, I mean, with all the money this guy had, think of the big place he could have built on land that God promised was his. I mean, for all the money, I mean, it would have at least made it easier not to carry all of it along with him. But you kind of get the idea if you're constantly on the go, getting more stuff isn't of benefit, is it? It's more stuff to drag. On the other side of it, he was also a man known for leaving altars, a place where he, I mean, when he moved from place to place, he'd kind of go, what was this? Oh, that was when that man Abraham was here. And what would it be like to walk by Bethel and I and go, what's this? 
Well, that's that place where Abraham came back and went, oh, God, you are the God who protects us, who provides for us. You're the God who provides for us. He's our, you're, you're our purpose. Oh, okay. And now we see the man and he's been buried. The shell of him is being buried. And it came to pass, and by the way, it says he's next to his wife, verse 11, and it came to pass at the death of Abraham that God blessed his son. Now it's time for God to bless his son Isaac. And Isaac dwelt in Bir Lachairoi. Can you say Bir? See, you never thought you'd say that word in scripture or in um, Bible. Sorry, was it church? You never thought you'd say that word in church, would you? Well, at least not here. Beer, by the way, means well. The Hairoi means who sees and knows, or the God who sees me. And if you remember, this was the place when Hagar was removed the first of her two times. The God met her and said, "What are you doing here?" Oh my, Rebecca, Rebecca, she, um, you know, she just she, she cast me away. Sarah cast me away. Sorry. Because, you know, I, I got pregnant and got cheeky with her. I have to go back. She goes, aren't you the God who sees me? Even in those weakest moments, you're still the God who sees me. And that's where Isaac is living. Now, for what it's worth, we really aren't going to get a much about this guy Isaac. But at this particular point, there's something that just really kind of tackles me in verse 11 that you could miss. You hear so much talk about a thing that I, 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 and it really kind of bothers me, called a generational curse. Have you heard this? And the reason they'll say something like that was, well, look at how this guy was rotten and clearly that curse hands down. And what's interesting is you get about that much concept and then you take the rest of it from, from society, which is, well, after all, you know, if dad's an alcoholic, you're prone to be an alcoholic. If mom were, Well, and certainly there is some of that to it. But scripturally, God says he does not visit the sin of a person to anyone who loves him. It's important to recognize that. He'll say he'll visit that to the third or fourth generation of those who hate him. But he never says that about those who love him. And it says that, by the way, it's illegal to punish a child for their father's sins. Well, that's kind of key. However... And the reason I say is we're so naturally negative. Have you ever heard of a generational blessing? I mean, who throws that one out at you? Well, you know, because that's a little bit more scriptural. Because what you see is God, how many times in scripture is God going to see? And I challenge you to search it. Well, you know, because of your grandpa, I'm going to bless you. Because you're kind of a jerk. But I'm going to bless you anyways because your grandpa, I loved him. God's going to say it about Abraham. He's going to say it about David. He's like, look, at I love that guy. And because I love that guy, I want, I want to love you too. I mean, I, I see a little bit of him in you. But don't we get that a little? Have you ever met somebody? And I mean, we've met enough people, and, and we've been around the block a few times, the wife and I, that you just, and around the world a few times, where you just kind of meet someone, and, and, and you, you want to tell them what's in your mind, but you could probably freak them out, especially here in, in London, where you could say, you look just like a friend of mine. I just want to hug you. And they're going, ah! They run away screaming. Because, you know, but and that's, maybe that's an American thing. But there's this idea, but, but do you ever meet someone and it's their son? And you kind of look at me and just go, well, you know what? I loved your dad. And because I loved your dad, it's just going to be easy to, to get along with you. I really hope you're as cool as your dad is. Or, well, I understand. I think God put that in us because here what we recognize is God really wants to bless us. And there's something about leaving a legacy behind. Remember, Abraham was, was somebody that was so much more than a guy of the here and now. We're going to see with guys like Hezekiah and other men where they get caught up and they get stuck in the now where God's like, look it, I'm going to punish, but I'm not going to do it in your generation. And they're going to go, oh, well, cool. As long as I don't have to see it, it's no problem to me. Instead of going, wow, my son's going to have to go through this? And you realize how opposite that is from the heart of God who had to watch his own son die 
and the legacy that's left behind from that. And the legacy of this amazing man is a son that God now says, well, now that Abraham's dead, let's move on with this blessing. Because God has an agenda, and this agenda isn't just, let's highlight a guy who was really awesome, but there is something that I look at and I go, God, whatever it was about Abraham that did this, would you ascribe it, can, could you make it in me? And that's in Isaiah 41.5, in Second Chronicles 20, verse 7, where in both places, Abraham is called a friend of God. And I thought, wow. I mean, of all the things that God could call someone, he called him his friend. But then, how many of us are immediately drawn to John 10, where Jesus turns around and he says, I no longer call you servants. I call you friends. Because see, a servant doesn't really know what his master is about. I mean, could you imagine if you sat down with your boss and said, could you tell me your five-year plan? Because I want to know exactly how I'm going to be serving you four years from now if I get, you know, promoted. I mean, and your boss may go, you know what, just go and do what you're supposed to. And he goes, but a friend on the other hand, he'll be like, let me tell you what's on my heart. And Jesus is like, look, I want to do more than just kind of make you mindless drones. I want to make you my friends. I'm thinking, well, let me ask you, is Christianity for you more than just a bunch of robots plugging into something like a Bible at best or a church at worst? And, and then, all right, we're just going to do what we're told? Or are we actually having a... You can't be friends with someone you don't have a relationship with unless you're delusional, and that's not healthy. I think this man died, and God called him my... He's my friend. My friend died. And, and you know what? If you're my friend and you died, wouldn't I want to take care of your kids? Wouldn't I want to bless your kids? So Isaac now, God starts turning that to him. Now, but before we deal with Isaac, we have another guy to deal with, and that's verse 12. Now, we want to remind you, when it came to Ishmael, God, when this girl actually leaves, he says, I want to warn you, back at that place, Behir Lahiroi, that same place where Isaac is dwelling. And God's like, meanwhile, the last time we were here at this place, I talked to that girl, Hagar, that was the mom of Ishmael, and said, look at that son of yours. He's, he, look at, I have a plan for him. And that plan is going to be a plan. It's going to be a wild man. And his hand will be against all men. Like What an interesting prophecy where God says that the, the children of this man also have a destiny. And their destiny is that they're going to rise up and they're going to try to basically become enemies of every other person on the planet. Now, that's a pretty crazy thought, isn't it? And it's interesting because if I look at it, there's really kind of be three things. And, and from the first family will come gifts. From the second family will come grief and from the third family which we'll see in a moment will come god well in the second one we read in the genealogy of ishmael abraham's son who the egyptian sarah's maidservant born notice by the way god never calls her in genesis calls her wife like look at she was his maidservant no matter how much abraham wanted to act like she was his wife i'm not i'm not recognizing that i recognize this person as a human being these were the names of the son of Ishmael. From the names according to their generations, the firstborn of Ishmael, Nebayoth, then Kedar, Abdiel, Mibsam, Mishma, Duma, Masa, Hadar, Tima, Jitur, Nafish, Kedima. These were the sons of Ishmael. These were their names by their towns and their settlements. Twelve princes. And that's exactly what God promised, that these guys would not be people that would live obscure lives. These would be people that will lead other people. What do their names mean for what it's worth? Heights, dark, disciplined of God, fragrant, a report to be dumb, a burden, fierce, encircled, like to surround someone to, to tackle them, refreshed and 
the one who gets precedent. That's the last of them, Kedemel. These were the sons of Ishmael. And it says they were the years of Ishmael were 137 years. He breathed his last and died. And was gathered to his people. Quick, quiz, just to see if you're not just in a coma. Here we go. How old was Ishmael when he died? Nice, 137. Now, this will be easy for those of you who really like numbers. If you could just remember Sarah, Ishmael, Jacob. Can you say that? Sarah, Ishmael, Jacob. Why? 127, 137, 147. That's how old they lived. Now you know all their ages for what it's worth. So, Sarah is the only woman in Scripture. God actually mentions her age at death, 127. This particular Ishmael dies at 137. Jacob will die at 147. It says, for what it's worth, they dwelt in Havilah as far as Shur, which is in the east of Egypt. If you do that on a map, where does it take us today? Anyone know? Saudi Arabia. That's where it takes us. And he died in the presence of all of his brothers. Nobody doubt, doubted that he died. What's interesting, though, is notice from there, we don't see any, we don't read, and God now moved a curse from this person to anyone else. We don't read anything like that. We don't read, well, now that Ishmael died, God actually went and he just poured forth his wrath on all of his children. And then God says, there's a plan here in all of this. But my plan is to highlight this other guy, this guy Isaac, right? And so with that, it isn't that he doesn't love any of these other people, but God has a specific mission and the Messiah can only be born from two people. Because in the end of an ultimately one in God. So these are the genealogy of Isaac. Now let's get to that. And God says, now that we've gone through our other two, the one who will come back with gifts, that will bring gifts, the one who will bring grief. And now, verse 19. This is the genealogy of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham begot Ishkach. Ishkach was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, his wife, the daughter of Bethuel, the Syrian, from Padam, of Padamaram, the sister of Levan, which, we'll, again, we'll meet later. His name, again, means Whitey, the Syrian. And we read, Isaac pleaded with the Lord for his wife. Now, the word for plead, for what it's worth, is the word atar. Would you say atar? And the word really means to beg. It's the same word that's used, by the way, in Exodus chapter 8, verse 8, when Pharaoh tells Moses, would you beg God to stop this whole nonsense? It's the same word that is used for Manoach, if you're familiar with him, who happens to be the dad of Samson in Judges 13, when he begs God for wisdom, how to raise this kid that's going to have this great promise on him. And the reason I say that is in both cases, there's this sense of weakness There's this place where you don't just come to God and say, you know what, God, I could use a little bit of help here. This is a moment of real weakness. Do you know the difference in your own prayer life? You know, those moments when you're kind of not just going, well, you know, things are okay. They're kind of cool. Jump in a little bit on this one, God. And those moments you're like, God, unless you step in, this is really going to be a catastrophe. The reason I say that is that's the word that's here. And you see a man at this point who's not asking God for a little bit of help. I mean, it's been 20 years. Now, has there ever been a guy more equipped to understand the idea of being patient with kids than probably Isaac? Remember, it took him 25 years in the making. I mean, that we're at least aware of, and it could have been even longer than that. And you can see him kind of going, hold on, honey, it's all right. And you can see him going, I married the wrong man. Your dad took 25 years. How long is it going to take for us? It took 20, for goodness sakes. And we just read that it gets to this point where he, he's, he's begging God, can please? And you know what? I know this a little bit. Uh, we didn't wait 12, 20 years. We waited seven. Well, we didn't wait seven. It just took seven. And I remember there's that point. For those of you who are married, this may make sense. For those of you who are single, just be patient with me. Where your wife looks at you and says, Now! And you're like, now what? Now, now. baby has to happen now. 
and you think, oh, okay, I hope. I'm not really, not really the one you know, might want to talk to. And I just remember, man, just the grief and the, the ag- I mean, agony in the household when, and pardon me for getting that kind of explicit, but you realize, man, it's, well, it's not going to be this month. And, and you know, and, and you, you just don't want. And, you know, and I, I, some of you guys, hope this may make sense. You just, you pray. You just pray, all right, God, I, I know it's your timing. I don't normally, I mean, my prayer, to be honest, in the beginning was not, God, give that woman a baby. In the beginning, it was just, God, give her patience. I mean, you know, I know when it's your time. And I was kind of real cool, Phil. I said, God, whenever you want, whenever you want, it's cool. Because I know that this is going to happen in your timing because I know that you'll know when I'm ready for this. And I kind of thought that the whole thing kind of hinged on me being ready to be a dad. And so, I'm, all right, Lord, I, 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 I know I don't have a lot of really good role models in that, but... Lord, I just trust when you know this is it, when I'm at least at that point in my faith with you and my walk with you, you'll give us a baby. And my wife um, didn't necessarily have that same particular mindset as I did. She was more like, now! And, and then it finally got to this point where she just kind of looked at me and she said, well, maybe, maybe the issue's you and you might have to go get looked at. Now, I'll be honest with you, it was the first moment in my life that I ever prayed Get that woman pregnant, Lord, right now. <laughs> I mean, the Lord knew, right? And, and, and can I just dare say that it could very well be, because God's kind of like this with me, and I, I'm really spoiled this way in the best of ways. The Lord may have actually put a child in her at that very moment. Because I could tell you at that moment when she was saying that, she was pregnant. And I can't, to be honest, it could easily be at that moment when the first time when she said, you should probably go to the doctor. And, and, I, and you know, there's that part of you that just, Everything inside of you goes, oh, oh what? <laughs> you know? And, and if you're like, gosh, they talk about this stuff at church. Look at life is life, man. We're, we're Christians here and we want to walk with Christ and all this. And, and, and it was the first moment where I pleaded with the Lord. It was the first poor moment in weakness where I went, Lord, if this is where this is going, pregnancy is a great idea. And you can get pregnant anytime you want, Lord. And, and that, and, the day after Christmas, I thought I'd given her an amazing gift, like any guy probably thinks in a moment like that. And I'm on my way for the first time to Israel. And she goes, oh, I have one last present for you. And she gives me this little box. It's the 26th of these, Boxing Day. And so I open up my box on Boxing Day. And there is this strip with a plus in it. And, and I, I, of course, it's like your whole is like, <laughs> you know, if you ever seen that in a movie where, like, nothing else matters with that moment, you're like, ah. Uh, does mean what I think it means? It's like, oh, oh, oh. And there's that, right? There's that moment where, like, there's that you want to show sheer delight to your wife, and there's absolute panic inside for you. You've never been a dad before. And I got this amazing advice from a, a youth pastor, a friend of mine from Florida. He says, Tony, I need to tell you this. When your wife got pregnant, she became a mom. The moment she started conceiving, everything's going to change. Chemicals are going to start flying in her body, all kinds of crazy things. You won't become a dad till you hold your child. The moment you hold your child, you'll know you're a dad. Until then, you're just going to be the husband of a psychotic woman. And that was such great counsel. <laughs> you know. And actually, she really had a, a relatively very normal pregnancy in a lot of ways. I mean, I waited to go out to get pickles and ice cream. It never happened. And... Um, and so, 
It was, it was just, but I remember the moment my, our daughter was born and I held her and, and I realized what an absolute ridiculous gift of life I had just been given. And there, and just holding this child and going, if I had, and, and I remember one of my first thoughts was, man, my dad, I don't think my dad ever got this feeling. I'm so, I, feel, I felt so, so bad for him. that He never knew how, what a gift it was to look at a child and go, oh, you're mine. And, I feel, and, I, and my heart started to break for all kinds of people that they look at a child as anything other than this amazing gift. Well, you look and think, he gave me this one? And she came out tan. What a gift. I mean, we were in California, so I guess that made sense. It was jaundice, but it was tan as far as I'm concerned. And, and I just... Um, if I had known that kids would be that amazing, I would have had a bunch of them earlier. But then God knew what timing he was, you know, was right. And, and, and I just look at this man for a moment, and he's pleading. He's pleading with God. God, please, um, my poor wife, man, 20 years she's wanted children. And in a society, by the way, where you ain't anything, ladies, without a baby, without an heir and a spare. And, uh, you know, in... in here she is with no children, and you kind of see it kind of runs in the family, and and he just pleads, God, please, please, can you give my wife, please give her a child. And notice it doesn't say he pleaded for, with the Lord for him. I, and I just kind of get the idea that, that Isaac was just kind of the kind of guy that really cared about other people. I mean, remember, his mom died. He was 37. And he remarried at 40, and he said, and at 40, he was thus comforted from the death of his mom. That means three years he was grieved about his mom until he got married. And and, and it's looking, you can just see this guy, you know, now he's looking, he's going, wow, honey, I'm sorry. I, I know it's the Lord that opens and closes the womb. And then there gets that point, like every woman who wanted to be pregnant, where they started to ask, why in the world did I want this? With her, it was even more so. Verse 22, it says, the children struggled within her. And she said, if all is well, why am I like this? Husbands, you ever get that? Why is he like this? The word for struggle, for what it's worth, is a word, ratzatz. Can you say ratzatz? It means to crack in pieces. Maybe some of you ladies have had a difficult pregnancy where it seemed like the baby was going to be a football star before it came out because it was kicking you everywhere. Imagine the word that they pick was a word about cracking in pieces. Do you think the kids were cracking each other in pieces? Or do you think mom felt like she was being cracked in pieces? And you could see her going, wow, check out the baby. (laughs) Ribs are popping, you know. She has no idea they're twins. It isn't like she can get a sonogram. She's just getting real. She's getting as big as a refrigerator and looking, what in the world? You could see, you know, like, whoa, honey, you, wow, this is what babies look like? I should have asked dad about this before he died. And, you know, and actually at this point, dad's still alive. And, and so, you know, and she's struggling. She's, so what's, what's the deal? What's the deal with this? And she's asking her husband, right? And like the husband can answer. And so notice, by the way, and this is really great. This just tells you something. Ladies, it says, then notice in the end of this verse, she went to inquire of the Lord. Don't you love that? Okay, try to find that in something that was written 3,000, 4,000 years ago. A place where a woman had right access to God. Try to find that in something in the Middle East today. There are a lot of cultures where a woman can't even go to God without talking to her husband and letting God do the, you know, letting their, their husband do the work. Scripturally, and they say, well, you know, this is, look at how, 
I'm not saying it's feminist. I'm just saying look at how gloriously freeing it is because God doesn't want a relationship with you ladies through your husband. He wants a relationship with you through Jesus. And he wants a relationship with you intimately. And this woman actually seeks the Lord and she gets an answer. And I love this. Do you realize here it says, and the Lord, verse 23, said to her. Did you get that? Not the first person that God spoke to. Because he could hear the high roy, God spoke to Hagar as well. To his angel. And here it would be that God personally speaks with this girl. This girl finally has to come to God and she's like, she's like, all right, God, what's up with this? And God says, Two nations are in your womb. Goy is the word goyim. Two peoples. Leum. And it says, They shall be separated from your body. One shall be stronger than the other. One people shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. And by the way, this will become the basis for the rest of your Christian walk, whether you know it or not. What you have is a crazy internal battle. A crazy internal battle between two very opposing forces. What he tells us is there's two very, very distinguished, different types of people that are living inside of you right now, whether you know it or not. And of those particular two specific people, they are going to battle over which one's going to have prominence. They're going to alpha with each other. They both want that. They both want the, they both want what, you know, they want to be the, the alpha in it. And it says, but in the end of it all, listen, the one that is older is going to have to submit to the new one. The new life is going to win. And I look at that and I think, wow, God put that here? This is Genesis 25, and I already get Galatians 5.17 from it, where it says that the flesh lusts against the spirit and the spirit lusts against the flesh. They're contrary to each other. And I think, you know what? Throughout Scripture, it's going to be this over and over and over again. What we get is the first king is Saul with a great calling but no consecration. And God says, step off. You're done. But that king doesn't want to step off the throne for the one that God ordained, which is David. And until David takes the throne, there's going to be a battle. And how is it that David finally gets the throne? Because he says, you know what? I mean, all the times he has a chance to kill him. And he says, nope, I'm going to let God do this. I'm going to let God put me on the throne. How does God put David on the throne? The old one has to die. Did you get it? And God has been preparing us for that all the way back. And you realize, oh, I'm just going to read quickly through this chapter because there's just a bunch of names. No, wait a minute. God says here, there's two lives living inside of you. In the end of it all, they're going to fight for each other. They're always, listen, always going to be contrary to each other. They're never going to have a time where it's like, let's just hug and have a moment. And by the way, your flesh and your spirit nature, they're never going to have a timeshare. By the way, the flesh doesn't share or play well with others. It's into total domination. And until it dies, there'll always be a battle. But the good news is there's a promise at the end. It isn't just, wow, things are going to really stink for you. you got two kids and they're going to hate each other because they will reconcile these kids to a degree. But in the end of it all, you need to recognize there is a promise, and the promise is that the new life is going to win. Believer, can I just say before we go any farther, if you've accepted the gift of Jesus Christ, the new life is going to win. Maybe you're still struggling with something. Maybe there's something inside of you that just goes, man, it just looks like right now that old guy, it looks like he's kind of winning, and God says, don't worry. I want you to know the new life's going to win. That's my promise to you. And God doesn't break his promises. Now, isn't this great? We have what we have like three pregnant people in our fellowship, at least as many as I'm aware of. I mean, you're thinking, oh, great, is this going to happen to me? May the Lord grant you the second and not the first. But in that, 
It says, so when the days were fulfilled for her to give birth, verse 24, indeed there were twins in her womb. By the way, it's the first mention of the word twins, but I don't think it's the first twins. Uh, For what it's worth, if you actually read the story of Abel and Cain, it tells us, by the way, that she conceived and then gave birth and then gave birth again. It seemed like she conceived once and then gave birth twice. For what it's worth, it doesn't call them twins, and you can disagree and totally be a Christian, but here clearly they're twins. So... For what it's worth here, they gave, they were, they were, the twins were birthed. And so now you're naming kids. Remember, you're naming kids like American Indians do, which, by the way, means that you name them by what you think, some form of character type about them or whatever. And it says, as they were about to give birth, you give birth. And the first one came out, hairy garment covered all over, and his name was Esau. By the way, he will be red as well. So he kind of comes out, in essence, looking like an orangutan. Think about that. She gives birth, and she's like, ah! No wonder why things were so tough. This thing comes out all hairy. And they're like, what do we name him? And they're like, let's name him Harry. And you think, wow, that was real brilliant. So they named him Esau, which, by the way, again, means Harry. Now his brother came out and took hold of Esau's heel. So his name was Yaakov. Now, by the way, Yaakov in its simplest mean means to circumvent. As a matter of fact, you will find that the word is actually translated half of the times that the word is used will not even be used to mention this person by name, but actually used as a verb about the idea of circumventing. And no matter where you want to take it, if I'm going to use the scripture to define scripture on this, I've got to take you to Genesis 27, 36. Because it, and go and flip there for just a quick second, just so you know this, because at least his brother kind of understood what his name meant. Because in Genesis 27:36 it says, Esau said, is he, ni- is he not rightly named Jacob? Because he has supplanted me these two times. Now, according to this text, I cannot take it any other way than what it says, which is that Esau understood his name to mean supplant. And he said, well, because his name means supplant, look at he done it twice. Now, I'm not telling you that Esau is being correct in his statement. I'm just telling you that at least Esau understood what the word meant. Now, back in our text, here's the idea. Now, what's so important about being born first? Let me remind you, because it's imperative that I build on this just for a second, and we're getting near the end of this. Because in the end of it all, that's the issue, it seems like. Remember, remember God gives this prophecy to, to mom before the children are born, and the prophecy is this. The prophecy is that these two kids aren't going to get along. Matter of fact, they're going to be contrary to each other, and the older is going to have to serve the younger. In the end of it all, the younger is going to win. Now, with that, first child is born, and the kid comes out. Now, what's the benefit of being old? Well, the first child born, first of all, remember, gets a double share of the inheritance, an extra measure. If I have three kids, I break my inheritance into four, and he gets the extra share. If I had ten kids, I'd break it into eleven, and that kid gets two. The oldest kid gets two. Why? Because he's responsible, of all of my children, he's responsible to carry on the family name, the family honor, and the family occupation, and therefore he gets extra wealth for that purpose. He also, by the way, is responsible for giving me a right burial. So, part of what my birthright is, the idea of having my birthright, the right of being the first child born, the eldest child born, I'm going to be the one that's going to carry on the family name. I'm going to be the one that's going to be responsible. Whatever dad does, if he's a carpenter and he does something well, he makes plows well, I have to make plows. But I not only have to make plows, I have to make them as good as dad or better. Because why would, why would I as the oldest son, and dad's going to dump that into me. He's going to dump into me the idea of what it really means, the tricks of the trade. And maybe as the oldest brother, I can teach the younger brothers, this is how dad does it. As a matter of fact, if you're familiar in, the, in Pesach, in Passover, when you have what's called Manishtana, which is the four questions that are asked, they're always asked by the child who is youngest to read. 
the first child in your family that's going to be able to read those questions is going to be the oldest son. And ultimately what's going to happen is he's going to be able to ultimately turn around and teach his kids. And if you know this about being an older brother, there's a pretty good possibility you're going to have a greater influence over your younger brothers than dad does. Because there comes a time right about the teen years where somewhere down the line something happens at about 12 or 13 where dad becomes an imbecile and he becomes an imbecile until you're about 22 when you need something more than money from him. And then at that point you kind of realize, well, dad really wasn't that dumb in the first place. I mean, I like to think when my kids get that age, they say, dad, you're kind of dumb. And I think, well, you're born for me, so you have to deal with that. So careful how you insult. Now, the reason I say that is, is that if it seems like what it looks like from this, again, if we're looking at it from an outside, is it looks like Jacob really still wants that stuff from the beginning. Even before they're, so like as they're being born, you can almost kind of see the idea of Jacob going, no, 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 I want those things. But Esau comes out first. And that's what they kind of call him, heel catcher, supplanter. Now, with that, it says, then his brother came out first, they called him so, and then the second child, they called him heel catcher or supplanter, Yaakov. Now, verse 27, the boys grew and I love this verse. Esau became a skillful hunter, a man of the field. And this makes perfect sense to me. So picture this with me. It's a gentle field. And in the gentle field, there are some deer. Birds are singing. And there they are. And, you know, it's just kind of quiet. And the butterflies are flying by. And all of this. And they look and they're like, oh, look, there's another animal in the field. Ah! And it's Esau because he's all covered in hair. You just thought he was an animal. Who better to be a hunter then a guy that's like, Wah! it's like Bigfoot jumps out and, and he just kills everything. You think, nah, that guy's good. And it, it, does this make sense, guys? It says, and dad loved Esau because he was a hunter. He came back with the barbecue. Dad loves Esau. But then we read this about Jacob. He was a mild man dwelling in the tents. Or we would say perhaps that he was a man of the kitchen. No, I'm not trying to paint him in anything other than this, that he was a mama's boy. That becomes very evident to this. Now, by the way, what's interesting, if, you are, if you've been a mama's boy, God has a beautiful plan for you. I mean, at least God doesn't disqualify you for that because God has a great plan for this man, Jacob. And by the way, notice, he had a plan for this before they were born. It is really important, though, if you've ever read, Jacob have I loved and Esau have I hated, if you've ever read that and you go, well, look at how God hated Esau before he was born. Do you know where that's written? It's written in Malachi, the last chronological book written in the Old Testament. It's obviously, it's over a thousand years after this. And, and I just want you to recognize that. This is in a case where God's like, well, I just hate that guy before he's born. Well, it's what's clear. And well, we'll see one of the reasons why here. Now, it isn't like God wished that Esau could go to hell. What he sees in this, though, is he sees a person who was really no interest in the things of God. One of the things that comes with this family is this amazing blessing and promise of God. Remember how God placed it on Abraham, hands it to Isaac, and that becomes one of the things on the family honor. Think about what it makes to give your family honor. I mean, today we don't even know what that word is because today we replaced it with something called self-esteem, which means you really don't have to do anything. Just feel good about yourself. That's all that really matters. Oh, you're good at PSP. Get good self-esteem from that. Oh, you killed someone, but you did it creatively. Get good self-esteem. I mean, in these days, you couldn't feel good about yourself unless you actually did something decent. They called that honor. And so in these days, understand to carry on the family name and honor, part of it was you were going to take this promise with you. And in this, what we read now is that he was, it says in verse 28, let's wrap this around. Isaac dwelt, uh, Isaac loved Esau because he ate his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Now, Jacob cooked a stew. There's Jacob making something in the kitchen. Esau came in from the field and he was weary, which apparently this was a bad day for hunting because he hasn't eaten anything. 
Esau said to Jacob, Please feed me some of that red stew. I'm weary. So therefore he called his name Edom. Like Adam, it means red. So they're just about giving him nicknames. And it says, Jacob says, All right, well then sell me your birthright this day. Which tells us, by the way, this is kind of an important deal to Jacob. This isn't like, how was your day? How are things going? It's like, hey, look, and I'm hungry. Oh, cool, give me your birthright. You know, I kind of realize how quick that was on the conversation. It seemed a little strange to you. And I kind of get the idea, this was a key for this guy. I mean, all the other things, and I'm not even talking about the issues of conniving or any of that. What seems clear about Jacob, though, is that this is an important thing for him. I mean, let's face it. He wouldn't be like, hey, I'll tell you what, you're hungry? Give me your bug collection if you didn't like bugs. And I was like, oh, wow, great. Can I have your, like, 1940s cricket bat if you hated cricket? I mean, the one thing you're going to ask for is something that's important to you. And what he wants is the birthright. Now, what's that birthright? That would give him the position of the older, which means Jacob wants to have the family honor or the responsibility of it, the responsibility of the family occupation, the responsibility, not just an inheritance, because, I mean, dad's so wealthy at this point, if you think about it, it really doesn't matter. It isn't like either of them are going to be able to spend this kind of money. But he's like, hey, I want more than this. Now, you would think at this moment, if you were any kind of guy that wasn't in a hurry with something, you'd be like, well, why? Why Why do you want this so bad? But instead, what we read is, what difference does it make? Verse 32, Esau said, look, I'm about to die. What's the birthright to me? And you notice in this, he's like, look it. In this particular moment, why would I care about that birthright? I'm about to die. Now, what kind of guy hunts until he's about to die? You ever thought about that? You're like, okay, another couple of minutes. I'm sure you're going to get something this time. Ah! Okay. And he crawled back home. I oh, barely. You got any food? I'm barely about to make it. I mean, you realize what's, what you got is a guy who's just dwelling in the now. I mean, now granted, we have no right in this country. If you've ever been to a third world country where people are like, I haven't eaten for three days, and they mean it. You know a guy here that says, I haven't eaten for three days, and you offer him something, they go, has that got mayonnaise on it? I don't like mayonnaise. Like, you know, like, wow, you really have a tremendous, are you allergic? Do you explode? No, I just don't really like it. Well, you have, you've eaten in three days. It's clear. I mean, you, you know, you show up in a country where they're like, I haven't eaten for three days. And you're like, wow, hey, I just stepped on this bug. They're like, oh, thank you. I mean, that's a difference. And the reason I say that is this guy's, I mean, this guy comes in from hunting. And he's like, oh, I'm about to, would you think this is the drama queen of the two of them? Is it Esau, Harry, Harry, the drama guy. He's like, oh, I'm about to die. And Jacob's like, cool, I'm going to seize on this, man. Well, give me your birthright. And the guy's like, why would I care for that thing? And by the way, this is what I get out of this. Is we, is, this is our far, sort of final point. And this is the issue for us. If all you're about is this particular quick moment, the devil thrives on it. He lives in that place. Because, you know, the idea is get it now. Don't worry about what you're going to have to pay later for it, right? hundred easy payments. hundred easy payments. shipping and handling. And don't order the service starts. You know, and you're like, what? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Ooh, shiny thing. I can, you can get that delivered to you in 25 minutes. You know? All right. Going to get that. And you realize the devil works a lot like an infomercial. He gives you the goods up front, and you spend the rest of your life paying for it. But you don't think about the rest of your life because I just want the thing now. And that's kind of the same thing with Esau. He's like, just give me the stew. I want some stew, man. Jacob's like, mm, I could cash in on this right now. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to hook myself up. And I look at that and I think, which one of these two guys do we want to follow? Because Esau, by the way, I'm going to remind you, he's the one who's going to lose. God says, look, at this is going to be a battle, and I've already told you who's going to lose this battle. So which one do you want to pick? 
I was like, look it. How many of your decisions that you regret today were made because all you thought about was the moment? You know what? And then because I'm going to come to you and talk to you about a God who really, I mean, I'm, I'm going to have to come from one of two sides, either the side of eternity that says, look at the moment you say yes to Jesus, your eternity is secure, but it's more than that. Your now gets better because you become a new creation the moment you say yes to the gift of Jesus Christ. But let's be honest. If I'm going to compete with what the enemy can give you for this quick, immediate moment, you're going to go, oh, but I can touch and feel and smell and get something out of this for this quick moment. I mean, granted, it'll ruin my family, it'll ruin my life, it'll ruin my finances, it'll ruin my whatever else, but hey, for the moment, it's going to be good. And I'm like, look, and I'm going to give you something that gets better every moment from this point on. Every breath you take, it's going to get better. And you're like, well, I don't know, though. Shouldn't I get the good stuff now? It's like, look, you get the appetizer now so that every bite you take gets you hungrier for the feast that awaits you. Now, where are you going to be with this? Because if you're going to live in this moment, you're going to live like Esau. And in the end of it all, what we'll read is that this guy despised his birthright. That's the word that we read here. So some of your birthright, and the guy says, well, what does it matter? I don't care. Go ahead. Verse 33, Jacob said, swear to me this day, and he swore to him. And then it says he sold his birthright to Jacob. Jacob gave Esau then. Well, he even gave him some bread. Isn't that nice? He actually kicked in a little bread for it. You're going to want that with it. And some stew of lentils. And he ate and drank, arose, and he went on his way. Not every saying, wow, what did I do? I mean, you'd think somewhere down the line, you know what it's like when you haven't eaten for a while and you kind of get a little bit like you're not really on top of it? You'd think somewhere in the middle of the meal, if it was something that you kind of made a bad choice, you'd be like, can we talk about that again now that I have a little bit of stew in me? I am bigger than you. I could kill you, right? You know, I am hairy. I, man, I'm telling you, I could wrap myself. I'm sweating here. I could wrap myself. You, and I smell. I clearly smell because you're going to play that game later with Dad and he's going to have to, you smell like my son. And I look at this and I realize it says, but thus Esau despises birthright. He said, look, and he's like, this isn't worth anything to me. Why would I want it? I mean, imagine if someone's like, you know, hey, give me your mole. What? Yeah, you have a mole on your head. You don't want it. Go ahead and give it to me. Yeah, go ahead. Take it, man. Yeah. You know, oh, what do you have? Oh, can I have your bills? All right, I'll give you this food, but give me all your bills. And you're like, yeah, take all my bills as long as you pay them, man. That's great, you know. I would gladly despise my bills. Give me your cold. Can I have your cold? Can I take it from you? Can I have your flu? Sure, man, take my flu. I despise that. Can I have your kids? No! You can't have my kids. Can I have your wife? No. No, you can't. You can't have my wife. Because they're important to me. I'm not going to give them up for whatever you have to offer me. Give me your ministry? No. Give me your dignity? No. Give me your honor. No. It's an important thing. What about you? Have you given up any of that for something right now? And you still feel like you're paying for it? Well, I'm here to let you know God can restore you right now. And as we go to prayer, he despises birthright. And by the way, that's how this chapter ends. It ends with the guy of the here and now who walked away without looking back at what he gave up. And what did he give up? He gave up a promise from a family that the promise was from God. Who needs that? I'm out in the field, man. I'm going to go kill something. It's interesting. That's where he's at. I'm going to go kill something. On the other side of it, Jacob, for all of his flaws. And by the way, God certainly doesn't paint Jacob as perfect. And why would God paint Jacob as perfect? He paints him as a human being like the rest of us. And I love the fact that God loves imperfect human beings. Isn't that beautiful? I mean, if Jacob were perfect, which one of us could relate to him? 
Jacob is a human being like the rest of us. And he's certainly not perfect, but one thing's for sure, at least when it comes to this. And I love this about him. God has a habit of picking people who want the right thing, even if they don't always do the right thing. Does it bring you any comfort or just me? And God would call David a man after his own heart, but let me ask you, did David do everything right? And I think, God, could you take me up a level? Could I be the guy that actually got your heart, not just the one who was after it? I really love that. I'd love to be called a friend of you. Thank you for calling me that in John 10. So look at this. We go to prayer. Let me talk to the saints here for a moment. If you accepted the gift of Jesus Christ, let me give you this promise again from Scripture. The older will serve the younger. If you accepted the gift of Jesus Christ, the moment you gave your life to Christ, 2 Corinthians 5 tells us you became a new creation. A new creation. You're not always an addict. You're not always a loser. You're from new stock now. You've got a whole new spiritual DNA. And he wants you to know that. Oh, the battle you're facing right now, that old guy doesn't want to walk out. That's why Scripture tells us you're no longer to live like that guy. And by the way, one of the quickest ways to see that guy die is you starve him to death. I found that here as well. And the more you feed, I mean, I've heard it said faith and doubt and the old man and the new man are like two dogs fighting and the one that wins is the one you feed. Who are you feeding today? But beloved, I'm here to let you know in the end of it all, God has a promise and there is one that wanted the promise and one could care less. Where are you at with that? Because that promise is born in a manger. And that promise is going to be tempted in every way yet without sin. And that promise is going to die on a cross just like God promised for your sins and mine when God lays upon Him the iniquity of us all. And that promise is going to raise again on the third day. What are you going to do with that promise? Are you going to say, no, I don't think that benefits me enough in the here and now? Well, then you can walk away like Esau today, but was that what you want? Or you can take the gift of Jesus Christ right now. And that's the choice you need to make. Will you pray with me? Lord, I know that in Scripture, you've promised, Lord, of all the things that we could have or do in the end of it all, the most important choice we'll ever have to make is the choice of whether we've accepted the gift of your Son, Jesus the Christ. It is the foundation. It is the cornerstone for all we believe. All the history, all of our ethnicity, all of the the society, all of of the whatever it is that we've come from is not our foundation. Jesus, you are our foundation. Clearly and evidently, Lord, that's the one thing you've been pointing us to from the fall of man. And even before, because you told us before, the foundation of the world you were ordained, Lord. And I just pray right now, Lord, first of all, for every believer in this room, myself included, God, that you, you make us people, Lord, who first of all are confident that we're citizens in heaven, that we're not just about the here and now, the quick fix, but that you play for keeps. And in that, God, that you make us celebrant, that we can trust that there will be a day, Lord, and each day may we see, Lord, that the older becomes less prominent and the new becomes more so prominent. And that we can rejoice, God, that we may not be everything we want to be, but we could be thankful if we aren't what we used to be. 
So God, I just want to thank you. And Lord, I recognize that with each of us, that battle will still rage. And Lord, for those of us who are trying to get those two to be roommates, God, show us that just doesn't happen. That we can't live both worlds. We're going to have to make a choice. Which God will we serve? We can't serve two masters. So make that clear to us, I pray. And here right now in this room, Lord, as you've made evident to us the necessity of that choice, I want to ask you something in this room. Have you accepted the gift of Jesus the Christ? Have you accepted His gift on the cross? Have you accepted that He died to pay for all of your sins so that your guilt could be completely accounted for and in doing so rose from the dead and offers you now His innocence for your guilt, His life for your death? He's not asking you to earn it. He's not asking for you to win it. He loved you before you were born. The issue is he's asking you to accept it and by faith receive it. And if you've never accepted the gift of Jesus Christ or today you recognize you've been trying to live both, but you want to say today, Lord, I want to say yes to you completely. Pray this prayer with me. God in heaven, I recognize I'm a sinner. And I recognize that makes me guilty before you. But I believe you punished my guilt on the cross of your son, your only begotten, who died on the cross for my guilt, that the old man could die. And then he rose from the dead just like your scripture promised so that I could be a new man raised in the newness of life, a new creation. So I accept the gift of your payment, Jesus the Christ, as my ransom, as my payment, as my deliverance. And as He is the resurrected Lord, I surrender myself to His Lordship, confessing Jesus as my Lord and You as my Father. Adopt me as Your own on this Orphan Sunday. Adopt me as Your own. Make me completely Yours. Make my heart completely yours. Make my life completely yours. As I surrender to you now. In Jesus' name. And if you agree with this prayer, I ask you to say, Amen.